of the kingdom. And in light of Jesus' arrival as the king, that is, in light of the arrival of God's kingdom, it is imperative that sinners repent and believe in the gospel. So in light of Jesus' proclamation this morning of the kingdom of God, I want to sort of organize our thoughts around two questions. Two questions this morning that will sort of organize our thoughts. First, what is Jesus' message? What is the message that Jesus is announcing? And second, how are we to respond to Jesus' message? So, What is the message? And then naturally, how do we respond to that message? Let's begin in verse 14. Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Proclaiming the gospel of God. Remember that when we studied verse 1, we saw Mark sort of introduced the gospel that he was writing. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice that word gospel. It's a word that, that you sort of hear thrown around in churches. You hear it used often about the gospel and believing in the gospel or believing, you know, gospel-centered churches and gospel-centered stuff and that so and so. We use this word, we sort of throw it around, but, but gospel literally means good news. So when, when Mark's hearers would have heard that, that word gospel, what we use, that English word gospel, when they would have heard that word uh, gospel, they would have immediately envisioned in their mind good news. Not any old good news, not just any old news that's out there, you know, not a whole lot of good news on TV, if you turn, you know, there's a lot of bad news, right? But when they would have heard that word good news, it would have been, that word gospel, they heard good news. The usage of this word in Mark's day would have been often used in a a context of victory. Perhaps a country or a military or a king had won victory over his victors. And so uh, uh, these boys would go out and proclaim good news. They would proclaim a gospel that that some, some country has had victory. We've had victory over our enemies. In other words, Jesus is proclaiming Victory over his enemies. Jesus is coming and declaring victory over his enemies. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus displays definitive victory over sin and Satan. The point of this is that Jesus is declaring victory. This passage is, if you will, a summary of all Jesus' ministry will be about. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. And this victory comes in God's perfect timing. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... So he's proclaiming something. What's What's the content of what he's saying? He's saying that the time is... Fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. Friends, nothing happens outside of God's perfect timing. The time is fulfilled. Jesus is saying, literally, the time 
has come to pass. The time has been completed. Now, Jesus doesn't have in mind, you know, time on a clock, like some sort of continuous time that goes on and on and on, but rather he has a specific point in time in mind. He's saying that the time, this time right now, something new is happening. Right now, in my company, something new, something distinctive is happening. There, there's been a shift. There's been a change. There's, there's been some trend. We're doing something different now. The time has been fulfilled. The Bible says that God has a plan to save sinners. And that plan is introduced early on in the Bible. You don't have to get but a page into the Bible and you begin to see God's plan to save sinners. Right in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I've got a plan to fix this problem. But when we go to the New Testament in the writings of Paul, we begin to discover that God's plan, well, it didn't begin in Genesis 3.15. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that that plan was in place before the foundation of the world. Before God even laid the foundation, before even, if you will, pulled out the blueprints for the world, God already purposed to save sinners. God's plan was already in place. And we can have hope that God will finish what He started. Jesus is declaring that God's plan is coming into fruition. That the the God of the universe has invaded human history in the person of Christ. That preparations have been made, if you will. That that the, the, the best laid plan has been laid down. All of the prophets have been pointing to this moment in time. All of the prophets for thousands of years have been writing for this moment in time. Though they didn't fully understand what it would all mean and all the details and all the intricacies, they saw from afar, Jesus says. And now, in the coming of Jesus, it signals the beginning of something new. It signals the beginning of something new. The coming of Jesus is the, is the beginning of the end. This is why Jesus will say later in chapter 2, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus' point is that while God has always been in the business of saving sinners. It's been in the preparation stage. That is, all of the saints of the Old Testament, well, they they didn't look to some other means of salvation. They weren't saved by some other means as if, like, they had to do some good things, you know, they had to do, they had to follow the law and all that, and that's what saved them. No. The Bible is clear. that They were saved by the blood of Jesus. That they saw from afar. They believed by faith in the promise of God. And the promise has come in Christ. In the coming of Jesus, the beginning of the end starts. The clock. If you if you will, we you know, a few decades ago there was all the talk about the doomsday clock, you know, the countdown to the end. Right? Well, friends, Jesus is declaring in that short phrase, that the clock started that day. The clock started when Jesus came. 
and slowly but steadily time has been moving toward its completion in Christ. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand? What does it mean when he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand? What is this kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about? What is this? If you take notes, this might be particularly helpful. God's kingdom is God's redemptive reign and rule over people's hearts and lives. The kingdom of God is His redemptive rule and reign over people's hearts and lives. That's what the kingdom of God is. While the Bible speaks of God's universal reign over all creation, when speaking of His kingdom, it has a more narrow focus, a more laser focus on His rule over people's lives. When God speaks of His kingdom, He speaks of God's people under His rule and in His place. So God's people under His rule and in His place. And if you were to take that lens and run it through the whole of the Bible, you begin to see that every moment that God intersects the lives of people, it, it falls within that framework. God's people under His rule and in a particular place. The nation of Israel. God's people under God's rule in a particular place, the promised land. We even see that in the Garden of Eden. God's people under His rule in a particular place. So the kingdom of God is about God ruling over a people. About God saving a people. About God taking a people for Himself, for His own glory, and redeeming them. And Jesus is declaring that the King is here and the kingdom has arrived and His reign has begun. The Bible tells us that God created us in His image. All the way back in the beginning, He said, I've created you in My image. And He created us to rule, to have authority. To rule as, if you will, vice regents over this world. But the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they decided that, you know, they didn't want to have a cooperation with God. They wanted to rule themselves. And so they rejected God's rule in their life. They said, no, we're not going to do this together. We're going to do this alone. Well, when everyone is king, what happens, right? Problems soon entered the world. Anarchy and chaos began to reign. But in the midst of their willful rebellion against God, God introduced a plan. God said, I will one day have a new king. And this king will reign victorious over my people. And in God's plan of redemption, He would invite rebellious people back into His kingdom. Where Adam and Eve were cast out from God's presence. Where the Israelites, because of their sin and rebellion, were cast out of the promised land. 
so sinners who were cast from the presence of God would once again be invited into His kingdom. Jesus is declaring that the kingdom has come. That the King has arrived to invite people into His kingdom. Friends, what Jesus is saying here matters for our lives. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus summarizes everything He's about. Everything He's about is summarized in this declaration. That the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's, if you will, His thesis statement of life. It's His mission statement. It's His vision statement. It's everything Jesus is about is summarized in this declaration. Jesus' ministry isn't about peace. Jesus' ministry isn't about social gospel or social justice. It's not about declaring love to all people. It's not about some sort of political control or anything else we want to throw on Jesus. Jesus' ministry is primarily about the gospel. About God's plan to save sinners. And this is the message that He came to declare. And it is the message that He made possible through His life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is central to everything in life. This is the message Jesus announced. That God's redemptive reign and rule has come in the arrival of the King. So, how do we respond? How is it that you and I respond to this message that Jesus announces? That Jesus, through the pages of the Gospel of Mark, will over and over again announce how do we respond to the King who announces supreme authority over our lives? How do we respond? I think in this passage we see two primary and one secondary response. Two primary responses and one secondary response. That is, how do we respond? By turning from sin. Trusting in the gospel and traveling with Christ. Turning, trusting, and traveling. Notice what Jesus says here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus declares two imperatives in your life. He says, The gospel is here. The king is here. The kingdom is here. The message has been announced. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. What does it mean to repent? We get all jumbled up in this here. What does it mean to repent? Simply it means to turn. To turn. To turn around, if you will. Stop going where you're going and start going a different way. Repentance is not other than turning from sin... Turning from sin and turning toward God. (laughs) At the most fundamental level, sin is living life your own way. You just wonder what sin was? You know, it's not abstract. It's simply living life your own way. Choosing to say, you know, God, I'm going to do things my own way. I know you've got a way you like things done, but but you know what? I think I'm going to do things my way. That's what sin is. And friends, we do it every day. Every day we make a a decision to to live life our own way. To say, God, 
well, I appreciate all you had to say about this or that. I decided to go this way. And repentance is saying, I'm going to turn. No, I'm not, I'm not going to go that way today. I'm going to go a different way today. Repentance is, is turning from our way and going God's way. It's a definitive choice in our, in our hearts. It's not an emotional appeal. It, it's not a, a, just a prayer prayed. It's a conscious decision to turn away from our ways and to go God's new way. Repentance. Repent and believe. Repentance is not perfection, but it's about taking sides. Repentance is not perfection. Repentance is not about you being perfect. It's about you taking sides. John says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's about taking sides. Whose side are you on? Repentance leads to real change and real fruit, the Bible says. Jesus himself says, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. Jesus is clear. Repentance bears fruit. Repentance bears fruit. Jesus declaring that the king has come, that, that he's arrived, and, and he's provoking us to a response. How do we respond to this message? That the king has come. That he's, that he's come to usher in sinners. Friends, the Bible reminds us on every page that we are sinners. In need of repentance. The Bible is so clear. There is not one ever born that is not a sinner in need of a Savior. Not one. Not one of us in here this morning is, is greater than another. More holy than another. All of us are in need of repentance. All of us need to turn back to God. Friends, repentance isn't an act that earns God's grace. It's merely a response to the grace that God has announced in Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, it's easy. It's easy to hear the word repent. It's easy to hear the command repent and think, yeah, that's for the guy next to me. It's easy to hear the word repent and think of, you know, your kids that aren't here today. right? It's easy to hear the word repent and and not ever think of yourself. But Jesus isn't writing to non-Christians. Mark is not writing this gospel primarily to unbelievers. Remember, Mark is writing this to a church. He's writing this to Christians. Why would he record an imperative to repent and believe to a bunch of Christians? Why, why do Christians need to repent? I mean, it seems silly. And that's something we did like when we were kids. Look again what Jesus says. He doesn't say that those that have repented and believed in the gospel. In John 3.16, he doesn't say, whoever believed in me. But if you notice, the Bible always, when speaking of repentance, it's present tense. Meaning that Jesus' command to repent, his, his imperative to repent is, is present. 
and active. It's ongoing. It's not something that's momentary. It's not something that happened in the past and now we've kind of gotten over that. No, no, no. Repentance is something that is ongoing. It's something that continues. And friends, it is something that distinguishes you from the world. Repentance is is like a, a large, big old jumbo aircraft carrier, right? You've seen the big old guys, right? I mean, them things, they aren't out there, you know, just, you know, like a speedboat driving them around the ocean, right? No, those, and those things come with a whole fleet of ships, right? whole fleet of ships go with that thing to, to be able to navigate it and, and to get it where it needs to go. Friends, if they turn that sucker around, they're not like turning it on a dime. They're just like, whoop, swip it, let's go back. No, that thing, it takes time. It's slow and steady turn. Friends, that's what repentance is. Repentance is a slow and steady turn away from sin. Repentance is, a, is, is waking up daily or moment by moment in your life and saying no, no to sin and yes to Christ. And friends, that is for everyone, believer or unbeliever. It is a turn towards God. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is exactly this. Repentance. Repentance. Everyone's a sinner. But there are two types of sinners in the world. There's two types of sinners here this morning. There are repentant sinners and there are unrepentant sinners. And at times in our lives, perhaps you're both. We all are. But what distinguishes followers of Christ from those that are not followers of Christ is repentance. What distinguishes members from non-members is repentance. When we actively decide not to repent, we are actively saying we don't want God and we do not want His way. But repentance is is turning. Repentance is, is saying, I will go God's way. Jesus doesn't say repent only, but He says repent and believe. So we are to turn from sin and we are to trust in Christ. Jesus says repent and believe. Belief is the flip side of the same coin. They're one in the same. They're just the same coin. It's not repentance or belief. It's not repentance only. It's not belief only. It's repent and believe. And all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, we see those two things go hand in hand. And when one author says repent, he means repent and believe. And when one author says believe, he means believe and repent. It goes hand in hand. It's the same coin, just the flip side. And if repentance is turning away from sin, then belief is trusting in God's plan, the gospel. Faith is fundamentally reliance. It's relying on God for salvation. It's saying that you trust that what Jesus accomplished on the cross actually saved you from God's wrath. While belief may be agreeing that the gospel is true, it means more than that. When we hear the word believe, we just we sometimes have some misunderstanding. 
Perhaps it's the way we were taught. Perhaps it's the way we just understand the world. When we hear that word believe, you know, we just naturally assume that just means like, you know, believe in a fairy tale or believing in Santa Claus or believing in the tooth fairy or whatever. Right? We just use that word believe in that way. And we, we, we sort of take that and we, we bring it to the Bible and we say, oh, that's what Jesus, Jesus, I believe Jesus was real. Yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Believe Jesus. Friends, that is not saving faith. James tells us, and he makes this point vividly clear. When he says that even demons believe that God is one. Friends, if you think this morning that that mere belief of historical fact is saving faith, the demons believe that and they shudder. The demons believe that Jesus was real. The demons believe Jesus died on a cross. They believe. They're not denying that Jesus was raised from the tomb. They're not denying the reality of those facts. They just aren't. They're not denying the Trinity. They're not denying that God is supreme. They're rejecting that. Belief is so much more. We can give a a sentient head nod. This, you know without putting our trust in it. We can say, yeah, that seems right, but not depend on it. When the Bible calls us to believe, it is calling us to trust. It's calling us to reliance. Sure, I can believe that Social Security is going to be around when I retire, but I still save for retirement, right? So we see that belief is not merely agreeing to the facts of the gospel. It means personal reliance on those facts. Belief is trusting or or having faith that God did create the world and that He does rule over it. That we rebelled against His rule and deserved His punishment. And that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Believing is applying the truth of the gospel to our own lives. Yet our faith in Christ-like repentance is not only momentary upon salvation. Belief is not something you do at vacation Bible school. Belief is persevering. Friends, saving faith is persevering faith. Those that are truly saved are those who persevere to the end. While merely walking down an aisle once in response to an altar call or maybe giving some emotional expression in a prayer prayed because some evangelist encouraged you to or emotionally tugged at your heart, it certainly does not provide the full picture the Bible does. Belief in Scripture is understood as a continual trust in Christ. An ongoing relationship, not just a momentary moment where you raised your hand. Genuine faith never fades. No, it never grows old. It never wears out. Genuine faith perseveres to the end. It's ever more trusting, ever more glorious in the promises of Christ. That's what saving faith does. And such belief will transform the way we think about life. It will transform the way we see the world around us. Our actions will then slowly and steadily begin to align themselves with God's Word. 
We'll begin to trust in God's promise of salvation. We'll begin offering prayers in faith to an unseen God. We'll begin changing our everyday lives. We'll change the way we'll spend our money. We'll change the way we spend our time. We'll focus our energies on other things like glorifying God rather than ourselves. Friends, genuine faith will begin by reading God's Word because we trust His Word now. We believe upon His Word. We're dependent upon His Word. We know that we can't live without His Word because His Word is true. We'll begin hoping in the new heaven and the new earth. And we'll even begin telling others the Gospel. Friends, that is what saving faith does to us. Mark provides here in this passage a vivid picture of what, of what true transformation looks like. In this narrative of the disciples, we see a picture of what exactly Jesus is, is calling. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. We see that we are to turn from sin, we are to trust in the gospel, and we are to fundamentally travel with Christ. Mark gives us this vivid picture of what it looks like to respond to God's message. It calls us to turn and to trust in Him. Friends, a gospel message that does not include discipleship or following Christ is not the true gospel. When we are not spending our lives following Jesus, we are not really following Jesus. Mark isn't merely here just sort of just writing us a little note and saying, hey, this is what happened. This is how we became followers of Jesus. That's not what's happening here. He is showing us what it looks like to follow Christ. What does it look like to follow this Jesus of Nazareth? And later in Mark chapter 8, he will take this, this call to discipleship that is thrust upon the disciples and he will make it universal for all who would follow Christ. From Jesus' calling of his disciples, we see just a couple things in conclusion we just want to look at. Just a couple things we're going to run through quickly. And we're going to see these themes over and over again as we work our way through this gospel. We see that Jesus has a unique authority over people's lives. Jesus has authority. In a couple of weeks, we're going to consider in a sermon, Jesus' authority. These men didn't choose to follow Jesus. Jesus chose them. Friends, rabbis didn't go around choosing people in, in that day. They, they, you know, rabbis just didn't do that. They said, I want you, I want you. No, it's the other way around. People went to follow rabbi. I want to, I want to learn from you. I want to sit under you, your teaching. And I, want to, I want to learn from you. But Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus says, I want you to follow me. Don't miss this profound point that the tier, this teaches us. When Jesus calls, sinner responds. That's what happens when Jesus says, I want you to follow me, you follow Jesus. Tim Keller reminds us you can't have a relationship with Jesus unless he calls you. You can't have a relationship with Jesus unless he calls you. Second, we see that following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is costly. Mark reports that these men were fishermen. Right? Now we know the story, right? They were fishermen. They were fishermen just fishing and they were bored and they wanted to... That's not what we see here. We see it men devoted to their craft. Men devoted to their business. We, from this passage and from the other synoptic gospels, we understand that Andrew and Peter perhaps were business owners. Seems reasonable. 
that they were business owners, that they owned the boat that they were fishing out of, that these two young men, these young entrepreneurs were out fishing there and they were making a living. But Jesus comes to them and says, I want you to follow me. I want you to leave your business behind. I want you to come follow me. I want you to give up what you got and I want you to come and follow me. These men were, were well-to-do. And we also see then in the, in, in the next verses that, that you've got James and John, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. They're in their boat, mending their nets. But, but Mark gives us this clue as to who they were. In verse 20 he says, And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. Now why would Mark include that? They left their father and their hired servants. Friends, John and James just weren't just average fishermen. They were, they were, they owned a fleet of ships. If they could own, if they could have servants doing their work for them, oh friends, they were much more than just servants. They were themselves owners of a large family business. They were well-to-do middle class workers who own this small business, and Jesus of Nazareth comes to them and says, leave it all behind and follow me. Following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is costly. But to us, we read that and we say, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I think I could do that. We live in a culture that, that celebrates individualism. We live in a culture that celebrates entrepreneurialism. We live in a culture that celebrates leaving your family behind and going out on your own. But in a Middle Eastern context, that is unheard of. You're going to what? You're going to leave your father? You're going to leave all the... The family business? You're going to do what? Are you crazy? What are you thinking? When Andrew and Peter left, when James and John left, they most assuredly were spitting in the face of their father and saying that we are going a different way. Jesus is clear that following him is costly. And this leads us naturally to a third and final point. Following Jesus will cost you your life. I want you to look back to verse 14 just for a moment. Mark says, Now after John was arrested, He reports to us that John was arrested. Now, in the, in, in the Greek text there, that it's literally to be handed over. And the translators are taking that word to hand over and connecting it to what happens historically to John, that he's arrested. But, but, but in doing that, we kind of miss a, a subtle point that Mark is making here. That word to hand over is the exact word that is applied to Jesus when he is handed over to die. And I think Mark's point is so clear that when you travel with Jesus, you go where Jesus goes. 
When you decide to follow Jesus, you decide to go where Jesus is going to go. Friends, Jesus will never take you anywhere he hasn't already been. And Jesus has been to some pretty dark places. Jesus has been persecuted. Jesus has been rejected. Jesus has been falsely accused. Jesus has been beaten. Jesus has, he, he was despised. He was betrayed. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was abandoned by his families. They laughed at him. They called him a drunk. He left his home. Friends, Jesus faced death. Friends, following Jesus is costly. In fact, it'll cost you your life. And I wonder, will you follow him? Let's pray. Holy Father, we are in such need of your grace this hour. As sinners, we deserve your wrath and your judgment. We have received the promise of the gospel that Christ has come to free us from our sin. And we plead before you now that you would open our hearts to consider these things, that we would grow in our repentance and our trust in you. And Father, that we would be found faithful to travel with you this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.